This episode contains content that may be sensitive for some listeners. The Thrive Global Podcast is a production of Thrive Global and iHeartRadio. We hear stories of the human spirit every day. It's just that we're not often put, thankfully, in these extreme environments. But we are so much stronger than we think we are, and our backbones are incredibly resilient. Hello, I'm Arianna Huffington, and welcome to the Thrive Global Podcast. Each week, we're having candid conversations with top business leaders, celebrities, athletes, and influencers to explore how they go from surviving to thriving, and how you can too. Robin Arzon is an incredible athlete. You may know her as head instructor at Peloton, where she pushes Peloton members to go beyond their limitations and excuses and transform their lives through sweat. Or you may know her as a 26-time marathoner and ultra-marathoner who wrote a New York Times bestseller called Shut Up and Run, even though she didn't run her first mile until the age of 23. But what you may not know about Robin is that she's also a survivor. Not only did she survive her former corporate litigation job where she worked 80 hours a week, she also literally survived a near-death experience when she was 21 and a diabetes diagnosis when she was 32. I love Robin's fearlessness and her expression to be a victor, not a victim. And I'm so excited to have her here. Welcome, Robin. I'm honored, truly. Thank you so much. I just loved your book. I love your life and your passion. And I want to go back and talk about your mom. Yes. Because my mom was such a huge part of my life. And uh, you describe your mom as a quirky physician (laughs) Um, who has multiple sclerosis Mm -hmm. and taught you that it's better to be bald and weird and to do your own dance, especially when people are watching. (laughs) That is an accurate uh, depiction of my mother. I'm so grateful for her example. She is a refugee from Cuba and literally taught herself English by watching PBS and Sesame Street well into her teenage years. And I think the idea of being able to pivot was always a story that I was able to tell myself because my mother lived that and then passed that on to my sister and I. She tells this iconic story. She was in a Catholic high school and there were two tracks in the 60s. You were either in secretarial and administrative assistant track or you were in the college track. But the only classes she was doing well in were math, math and things that didn't require a real literacy in English. But she knew that she could get there. And it was junior year. And this was the pivot. So she requested a meeting with the Monsignor and says, give me two semesters to prove to you that I can be in the college track. And that conversation was her pivot point. Now she's been a physician for decades. And I never forgot that story growing up of an ability to not only be your own best advocate, but also be able to pivot from somebody's expectations to your own. So, yeah. So what would you say was your pivot moment? Ooh, I think we all have many, right? And oftentimes they're not that dramatic. They're not across a a conference room table or a Jerry Maguire moment where you're throwing things on the floor. There is one very big pivot moment that you mentioned 
transformative in my life was being held hostage at 21, entering my senior year of NYU. That is when I became acutely aware of agency, powerlessness, and narrative. So yeah, that definitely was a big, big moment. But the bigger moments were actually the quiet moments that were after that incident. It was the day after and waking up the day after that, waking up the day after that. And I think trauma survivors remember the trauma, but it's the aftermath that oftentimes we're dealing with silently. That was the harder thing to deal with. So I think for me, the pivot was a year after being held hostage, being in law school and feeling the physical weight of trauma that I had never, I didn't know what that felt like. Someone asked me the other day, who taught you how to grieve? And I thought, no one's taught me how to grieve. As excellent as my parents were in teaching me how to be a presence in the world, I was never taught and I was never able to unpack how to deal with trauma. And so my coping mechanism was to physically run it out. And that was a pair of running shoes. And I ran my very first mile in law school, the catalyst really being needing to run out the trauma. So I think that was one of the very primary pivot points. But the smaller pivot points were lacing up and just stepping into my power figuratively and literally. But let's go back to that moment when you held at gunpoint, because I know you just mentioned it kind of in passing. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't a small moment, that's for sure. So can you take me there? Mm -hmm. Well, imagine, so we're in the East Village. It's a small wine bar. And I was a paralegal at the time. This is the summer entering my senior year. And a man had walked into the wine bar we were at. I was sitting in the stool nearest to the door. He says he's been shot. Moments later, the perpetrator walks in, grabs me by my hair. I mean, drags me across the floor as if I were furniture. Uh, So much so that I actually had clumps of my hair pulled out as a result. And then he throws me on the ground with about 19 other hostages and starts spraying us with something that was flammable. I later found out that it was kerosene. Starts flicking a barbecue lighter in our faces. And it was in that moment that you're trying so quickly to put that into what your known narrative is. And when things that unexpected happen, time slows down. And in that moment, I just started my refrain. I remember thinking my mother is not getting a call today that I died in the East Village. This is not the end of my story. This is not the end of my story. Somehow I knew that I I had to try to humanize the situation. So he threw garbage bag ties to me and said, tie people up. I tried to do them tight enough that he wouldn't shoot me, but loose enough that perhaps somebody could get loose and aid the situation. I ended up becoming a human shield, my back to his chest, and the NYPD were outside. And he would kind of show me to the NYPD to show that I was literally his armor. And I started asking him questions about his family and saying, we have families here too. Imagine what kind of phone call they're going to receive. He had a 10-year-old son at the time and lived in Brooklyn. And that was what we talked about. And all of a sudden, he started speaking to me in Spanish. And I thought, okay, well, this is my moment to find some kind of connection with this person who is unhinged but methodical and clearly in pain. I honestly don't even know what we talked about, but it was in those really slow moments. I just have to extend this conversation as long as possible until something happens. And then something did happen. A woman named Anne Margaret, a really brave woman, was sitting in kind of a wash basin and saw the perpetrator juggling with me, the gun, the barbecue lighter, and he would 
put the gun from my right temple and then put the gun in his waistband. He would put the barbecue lighter, flick it at my face, and then put it in his waistband. And then there was a cell phone and it was kind of chaotic. She saw him struggling with that, saw him holster the gun, immediately took action, jumped him from behind. All I felt was the sensation of falling because all of this was happening behind me. NYPD rush in, they shoot him, the bullet grazed his right temple. And that was the end of that part of the story. Mm. And then, of course, trauma survivors... It's in the rising that we really discover who we are. Absolutely amazing that in that moment, you wanted to connect with him. You knew that that was the one opportunity to save yourself and everyone around you. That was the only impulse because in the moment, rash action, grabbing the gun, that didn't seem logical. There wasn't an opportune time for that. And I thought what we have is proximity and language. Mm. Those were the only tools I had in that moment. But the fact that you are able to stay in the eye of the hurricane, it's one of the qualities that I must admire in people, you know, when everything around us is falling apart. Can you stay in that place from which we're so much more effective too? Mm -hmm. And we have such capacity for strength and resilience. And we often see others' strength before they see their own. In telling this story over the years, people are often like, wow, I could never do that. And my response is, yes, you can. We hear stories of the human spirit every day. It's just that we're not often put, thankfully, in these extreme environments. But we are so much stronger than we think we are. And our backbones are incredibly resilient. Yeah, this is so true that sometimes we freak out <laughs> about tiny things in our lives. But in moments of extreme danger, we tap into something that we didn't even know we had. There's something really innate. And I think that's why I fell in love with endurance sport, because I'm able to create, pull out that resiliency in a much less panic-inducing environment. Ultimately, we've made it through 100% of our bad days. And Knowing that should fill us all with such a confidence that we will be able to face anything straight in the eye. Right. But let's acknowledge that most <laughs> of us had not had a bad day like that. That's true. That's true. Right. And it does give perspective. And to be honest, at 21, that is when I started understanding how to create feelings of power in myself and really needing to create moments of agency. And I often talk now of Peloton and other areas of my work about bringing people into power, allowing them opportunities to step into the spotlight and step into their power. And it was only because of this experience did that become a fascination of mine. And I started thinking about legacy at a really young age. And that has always been a privilege because I do believe that our legacy is just really comprised of a lot of small decisions. And for me, there's freedom in that, knowing that every day I can make one better choice that will set me up for a legacy that I'm proud of and that honors where my mother and my father and my family came from. I think about that a lot. And for some, that might be heavy or morbid. But for me, I find it exciting because I feel like that is how I'm co-creating my life's work. When you actually started this um, amazingly extreme running, <laughs> I can't even fathom <laughs> what it's like to run five marathons in five days. 131 miles across Utah in yes. 2013. 
Yes. And that was as part of the MS run to honor your mother. Yes. But let's leave aside the MS run and honoring your mother. Let's just talk about the feat <laughs> of, of running five marathons in five days when people are unbelievably proud of themselves if they run five marathons through the entire lives. Right, right. right. And so, rightfully so. <laughs> yes. So what was that like? I've always identified with turning pain into power. There's something really about the alchemy of using pain and having that be rocket fuel for something else. So this is, I think, the path of the endurance athlete. It is the rite of passage. And it doesn't mean that necessarily we have to go further, faster all the time, but those are two metrics that excite a lot of athletes. And for me at the time, I, my mother had started losing eyesight in one of her eyes because of the MS and I needed to find power again. And one route to that was literally running across the state of Utah. Five marathons in five days. I'd never done this before. I had just left my law job, thankfully, because I had the time to train for this. And it was honestly the curiosity about my own capacity for discomfort. And that's the truth. There is nothing complicated actually about it. It is just the idea that forward is a pace and that we can continue a little bit more each day. <laughs> and then when you have people watching, I always say that when we don't rise to the level with which the world and our loved ones see that we can rise to, we're disrespecting them. Mm -hmm. Like in the days that I didn't feel like running, I felt like I was disrespecting my family and people who believed in me and people who donated and even random people on social media who were like, you can do it. That is an example of when pressure or somebody else's expectations are actually good for you. And I had to ascribe meaning to the finish line and I made it matter just like anything else in life. If it's meaningful enough, you will do it. But there were moments when you didn't think you would get to the end. My feet were so swollen that I actually had to cut the top of my shoes. My toes were so swollen, they were hanging over the front of my shoes. Blisters that you couldn't even imagine, literally two size bigger. But you know what? If it were easy, it wouldn't have meant enough for me to be talking about it now. And I think that is why those distances, and by the way, people in the endurance world, in the ultra running world, run way farther than that. So this isn't even a comparison as to what the human body is capable of or, or a comment on that. But ah, there's something in me that really likes the grit of knowing that it was difficult and painful and I did it anyway. And I think about those moments, like the small moments when my Uber is late or I'm frustrated <laughs> with whatever nonsense or real issues, you know, tough conversations. I'm like, I've been through this. I am the phoenix. That idea of the phoenix rising is how I live my life. And it's only because of the tough moments. So that's kind of the impact it has in your everyday life. The Every fact day. that it puts everything else in perspective. Also the fire. Like, I want to, when I am whatever age, I hope I live to 120, I want to look back and be like, damn, I just did so much. I want to be able to tell my grandkids and tell the people I'm creating this legacy for. I have so many stories to tell you because I lived. Some folks I'm sure listening would be like, I don't know if that's my idea of living. But you know, I associate joy with moments of awe. Mm -hmm. And running five marathons in five days was awe-inspiring. And it was something I did within my body, within my bones. There aren't many moments that we can curate like that. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Crest 3D White. And we are back with the Thrive Global podcast. Let's rejoin the conversation. 
tell me about the recovery. So there you are. You achieved this amazing feat. Your toes are hanging <laughs> like, out of, yeah. your, Blisters of are, your shoes. Are Blisters gnarly. everywhere. Yeah. What happens? What did you do? Ooh, um, thankfully, my family was there. You're hobbling around. I was still walking around. Thankfully, no injuries. And the cumulative training leading up to something like that is amazingly effective. So yes, that sixth day after the fifth marathon, I was in pretty raw shape. But you are doing back-to-back long runs, for example. So a lot of marathoners will do a long run on a Saturday, take Sunday off, and then resume their training, yes. you know, in a seven-day microcycle of training. An ultramarathoner will run, for example, 20 miles on a Saturday and then maybe 25 miles on that Sunday. And that is how I trained. And I just did back-to-back long runs. So I was worse for wear, but after a few days, you're fine. And like after we are a so, few We days, can repair. We're made to repair. Yes. The likely response yes. when you put your body to that extreme is that it will heal itself with time. And then after how many days were you able to run again? I was running again within a week. Hmm. Yeah, and that has been the pattern after 50 and 100 mile races within a week. So do you ever want to do this again? I do want to do another 100 miler. But for me, that was actually more challenging than the five marathons in five days. So the 100 miler was 100 miles within 30 hours was yes. the time cut off. And that required a different mental switch. Even though the distance was farther for the five, five and five, days, yeah. when you're running far enough, 26.2 becomes bite size. And there's something really daunting mentally about knowing that you're ticking off up to 100 in terms of distance within a given time. And that is a challenge I do want to take again. You do? I do, I do. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure my family is also saying, oh, no. But yeah, I have an appetite for it. So let's just talk about the price. Was there a price? Did your body pay a price for the 100-mile run or the 5 times 5 run? I think the answer is yes and no. I am physically stronger for it. I have now the building blocks and the practical physiological elements of blood volume and oxygen capacity. The biggest sacrifice was honestly of my time and of my mental strain. So I wouldn't do this every season of my life. I will not have the capacity to always do that. And actually racing has taken a backseat as I have taken on greater responsibilities as VP and head instructor at Peloton. And that was absolutely a choice. So I still have ways that I can use movement in exciting ways, but it's not necessarily training upwards of 30 hours a week for a singular finish line. Now I have multiple finish lines at almost every day in different ways. Right, but they probably... Seem uh, well, it's minor compared easier, to that. There know. is a sacrifice. There's a huge sacrifice, and there's a reason why I haven't done a hundred miler in three years. Right, it's because that does take a toll, and I would only pursue that knowing the sacrifice that it's going to take mm-hmm. and being completely okay with that. Because you can't be halfway through that process and bemoan the things that come along with it, because that is literally the crucible. Right, and also right now. The fact that I understand you have to change five looks a day. Yes, it's a, you know, I'm, I'm not complaining, but I do wear uh, multiple outfits, multiple layers of spandex throughout a 12-hour period. Wow. Yeah. So all that, which is not insignificant, having to navigate your daily schedule with looks and music and keeping the energy up. Yeah. Uh, for all the people who love and follow you, including me. <laughs> Thank um, you. You know, all that has its own challenges. 
But again, as you said, and that's what I love, what you've done with the 100 miler and then five times in five consecutive days um, running a marathon makes everything else pale into insignificance. Yeah, I do look at it as training for life. So while there are finish lines that punctuate, since I been marathoning in 2010, there have been many, many finish lines that I've been proud of, many medals that I've earned that are more valuable than anything in my closet or in my jewelry box. But those are punctuations. It's not a period. It's just a comma. And I really feel like I'm training for life. Mm -hmm. Any conversation, anything that comes my way, I have my own gasoline to the fire. I love that. I love training for life. And even your wedding. (laughs) (laughs) My wedding was like a wellness retreat. (laughs) Well, I don't know if it was a wellness retreat or as somebody put it, where Burning Man um, meets elegance and community. Yes. So the similarities to a wellness retreat were that it was focused on community. We wanted people leaving there better than when they arrived. And we created opportunities for meditation, a cacao ceremony. We had a 5K race. We had yoga on the beach. I'm vegan and so is my husband. And so it was a vegan for the four days that we were in Tulum, Mexico. And so we wanted to create a really safe and energetic place where people could make connections. Often as adults, we don't have the opportunity to make Mm -hmm. new friends and new connections. And our biggest moment of joy was when folks were leaving the wedding and texting us afterwards saying, I can't even believe how many new friends I have in my phone right now. That was a win. And I think my uncle, my Tio Jorge, might have been the most popular person from the wedding. So (laughs) he might have made the most friends with my husband's cronies from school. And where was your honeymoon? We did a mini moon in Chable at a resort called Chable near Merida. And we'll do our full on honeymoon next year in 2020. Mm -hmm. We're still considering where to go. So any suggestions, please offer them. No running during your honeymoon. No mini runs. Mini runs. Yes. Joyful, joyful Joyful little mini runs. Nothing crazy. Yeah. So in August, you did a 15-minute Instagram live about wanting to have kids Mm -hmm. and the fertility journey, which was really beautiful and moving. And you said there's no shame in having these conversations and using medical miracles, and thank God for that. Yes. My first baby was stillborn, so I now have two daughters that I'm very grateful for, but I hardly know a woman who hasn't been through some kind of difficult journey in the process of becoming a mother. So I love when we share these stories so and do I. support each other. So tell us about your journey. My journey, it's something that I'm grateful is now a topic of conversation. I remember before I even met my husband, when I was still at my law firm, thinking whenever I get the impulse, I'm just going to have a kid. I always knew I wanted to be a mother even before I realized that I would be creating a household and a family. I always had that impulse. And when I met my husband and now with the physicality of my job, we realized that's going to have to be a really intentional decision because I will not be able to work in the same capacity that many folks can still work throughout their pregnancies. The type A Virgo lawyer in me did the research. A lot of folks need to approach egg freezing and fertility because of concerns or diagnosis of infertility. That was not the case for my husband and I, but it didn't matter because I wanted to insert myself in this process and do what I could control. The way I approach training is the way I approach life. Focus on what you can control, get the information, and ask experts for the information that you don't have. So my doctor at Wild Cornell was like my coach in a marathon. I didn't approach it any differently. I was like, how do I optimize this? Tell me what I need to know. And of course, I 
needed to plan it with Peloton because I was off the schedule. I couldn't physically teach during those few weeks. And we did it over the summer. We froze embryos and we did genetic testing and we really feel so supported and I felt a responsibility to be public with this conversation mm-hmm. because I don't have anything to be ashamed of and nor should any woman. If I'm proselytizing and encouraging folks to step into their power, why would I hide in a shadow of something that I think should make people's backbones a little bit straighter? So Absolutely. I wanted to reach out to women and individuals, humans, who are using scientific and creative ways to find their way to parenthood. And uh, have you thought of your timeline? Yes, I have. I have. We're a few years out. And then the athlete in me says the egotistical place revs up. And I'm like, what do I need to accomplish physically? What do I need to accomplish professionally before I enter this journey? And then I'm reminded of the same conversations that I've been a part of with women and parents I admire that your life doesn't end like my own mother's life did not end and so that is the little battle that is very candidly happening inside me is do I run another hundred miler before I then have this conversation with my husband and then take some time away from the intensity with which I train I'm excited at the kind of vulnerability that's going to bring in but it also makes me nervous because I do operate at such an intensity that the other side of that is going to be revealed to me and who I am and I know that that next level is going to require a vulnerability that I I have not gotten in touch with yet. So that is kind of my next challenge. And, you know, what I find is that very often when a new challenge is sort of ahead of us, we're never really fully ready for it. Never. It's almost like we have to say (laughs) yes to it before we are completely sure or ready. You start before you're ready. It is literally what I tell people every day. They're like, I don't know if I can run. I don't know if I can do that. I'm like, start before you're ready. There's no different. There is never a perfect time. There is never such a quiet time in our lives that bringing a human into the world, it seems like the obvious choice. Exactly. Yeah. So sooner rather than later. I know. And it really does excite me as someone who is creating space, especially for women to step into power. I can't think of anything more powerful than creating a human. I'm actually very, very excited about that. But yeah, we're a few years out. I love that. Nothing more powerful. And also, I think, as you said, nothing is foreclosed. It's right. not like you can't continue doing no, getting my, I mean, just today, actually, there's a woman who I train with, who I lift with, Kaylee, and she has a four-month-old. This woman, I mean, with a barbell on her back today, lifting more than her body weight, more than I did this morning. And I'm just marveling at her. And then her husband came in with the baby and they would just had this process and had this glow. And I'm like, it's not a sacrifice. It's all just going to be additive. And it was really inspiring to see. So Kaylee, if you're listening, thank you. <laughs> Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Crest 3D White. And we are back with the Thrive Global Podcast. Let's rejoin the conversation. Thank you for being such an amazing advocate for sleep. Always. I think that's incredible (laughs) because as we are rediscovering sleep that has for so long been held in contempt, you know, Mm -hmm. all the little sayings in our culture, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead and you snooze, you lose. And (laughs) men especially bragging about how little sleep they get. So I just love the fact that you've said things like nothing beats the human growth hormone that releases while you sleep to help repair muscle tissue. And also now we are finding out to help repair our minds and our emotions. Yes, I mean, how we process 
Everything. Everything. <laughs> and uh, I love the fact that you actually say that you sleep for nine hours a night. Yes, it I'm is. an eight-hour girl. And, you know, I wrote a book on sleep, which yes. I just gave you. And all the scientists basically agree that unless we have a genetic mutation and about one and a half percent of the population does and they need just maybe four or five hours, but the vast majority of people need seven to nine. So you are a nine-hour girl. I'm an eight-hour girl. Where's your husband? He's seven. He naturally wakes up two hours earlier than me. Before you. Yep. And that is like clockwork. It is amazing how our bodies just know. When you start to really become in tune with that body clock, it's powerful. Your body will tell you what you need. So let's talk about your relationship with your phone. Because our relationship with technology is becoming one of the big issues of our time. As we are all increasingly addicted to our phones. So how do you find time by eliminating social media distractions, as you put it? Mm -hmm. Well, I have to create my own boundaries. And it is no different than the discipline that it takes to lace up or get on the bike or pick up a pair of dumbbells. It's exercising the willpower muscle, which I think is one of our most powerful muscles, you know, figuratively speaking. I will set an alarm at night to put my phone down, Mm -hmm. to remind myself, you've had enough. A lot of the self-care practices and, and the practices that I have now really were curated to prepare me for marathon day. Mm. And so the day before a marathon, I'm so aware of how I'm eating, how I'm sleeping, how I'm fueling, what water I'm taking in, how I'm speaking to myself. All these things that are self-care with a capital S, I discovered as an athlete. And that was one of the things was set an alarm to turn off your phone. <laughs> and it's interesting because I have a really dynamic and robust relationship with social media because it's how I connect with a lot of the folks in my community who are having these aha moments every day. So the ecosystem that I live in is actually quite positive, really, really passionate and very charged with that great energy, but you're still connected to a phone and that technology is directly correlated with mental health and all these other ways that we view ourselves and the world and each other. And it requires a really, really tough discipline and I'm not always successful at it, especially when I teach an evening class and my adrenaline is so high. I find myself just refreshing emails and refreshing and then responding and commenting and the fury of it. It's like a rapture. It is literally putting it down and putting it to bed, as you you would say. Now you have your little phone bed. I adore it. Thank you. (laughs) And the other thing that I love is how you start your day, because it's how I start my day, that you like to meditate before you check your phone. Yes, I've found that breath creates the innate pause between everything. Breath is like the natural ellipsis, <laughs> and I need it. Once the day goes, I'm off, and there aren't many quiet moments. So how I begin and how I end are the only things I really have control over once the gun goes off for the day. So that is a way that I create my own ellipsis. And then breathing, which is obviously so important while running, right? It's innate, yeah. But it becomes a way to reset in the morning, at night, and throughout your day? When I'm preparing for a show, when I'm preparing for a Peloton class, which is not unlike going on a network show or a Broadway performance, we have a green room, we have an instructor room, and I will do box breathing. Inhale for four, hold for four, exhale for four. I need that for my nervous system Mm -hmm. before and especially after, especially an intense class, like an interval class or an intense run. My nervous system feels like it's being chased by a bear. And I have to remind myself that, no, you're not actually in the woods being chased by a bear. That cortisol is really useful in the act. 
but that's for the 30 or 45 minutes or 60 minutes that I'm working out, not for the three hours after. So I have to create these ways to get that control back. And it all starts with the self-awareness of being like, wait, why am I short of breath? Why am I still so amped up? And then it's slowing myself down and winding myself down and also knowing when to turn the volume up. So that is the beautiful artistry of, of an athlete is knowing how we can self-soothe and how we can also put our feet to the fire a little bit. So, you know, I want to kind of underline what you said because I feel it's what our culture is missing. We have a very hard time moving into recovery. Mm-hmm. The, the expectation that we have to be always on in some form or another is, I think, what's leading to so much disease, you know, both chronic diseases and mental health problems. That's so profound. I hope you can speak and teach a lot about that. You know, the fact that you need to very consciously move into a recovery mode. Yeah, I find such strength in that. And for a while, I didn't, especially when I was doing marathons and I was still practicing law. There was this idea that more was more and that busy meant successful and and that success equated productivity and it didn't, that a title equated all these other things and they didn't. Now I find pride in being a hustler in alignment. So I, I saw something the other day, somebody posted a meme and it had the word hustle crossed out and it had a line written underneath. And I don't think it's either or. I actually think when you are in alignment or a flow state or all these ways, you know, that we can talk about that optimal state of awe and focus that requires hustle, but the hustle isn't at the sacrifice of well-being. Mm-hmm. It's in aid of it. And you can only work out and you can only train and you can only succeed as hard as you recover. I learned it the hard way from a literal musculature of our bodies, but it's every layer of our being that requires that. Thank you so much for reminding us of that. <laughs> Part of your recovery ritual is having that second bedroom in your home. Yes, that the is zen like den, your, we call your it. Zen den, <laughs> your sanctuary. Yes. With a plant wall, a small desk, a books, a cushions for meditation. Mm-hmm. So are you willing to sacrifice it to a baby bedroom? <laughs> <laughs> we actually have talked about that. We'll figure out other ways to maintain that yeah. sanctuary. Maybe it's that, that it won't be that bedroom. Maybe it'll be putting in ear pods and doing a meditation that way. I know there are ways and this is what I tell folks at Peloton all the time. It's not selfish to take away 20 minutes to do the meditation or to do the workout or go for a walk around the block. It is actually selfless because you will be so much more to everyone else in your life because you have fulfilled your own little moment of awe. That little joy, we have so much control over that barometer. As they say in airplanes, put your own oxygen mask on first. Thank you so much, Robin. You're an inspiration. Thank you for who you are and for what you're doing. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. Truly, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. We hope you heard something that inspires and empowers you. Be sure to follow the Thrive Global podcast on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you please email us at podcast at thriveglobal.com or reach out on social media using the hashtag thrivepodcast. Tell us who you'd like to hear from and what your favorite micro steps are. Until next time, be well and thrive. This podcast is a production of Thrive Global and iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Ariana Huffington. 
Thrive Global is produced by Sandy Smolens and mixed by Matt Noble at Audiation Studios in Bronxville, New York. Thank you to Lindsay Benoit O'Connell for booking and wrangling our wonderful guests and for providing editorial oversight. Derek Clement is our engineer and special thanks to Nikki Etor and Kari Lieberman. See you next week. Audiation.